You're listening to A Sure Hope with Pastor Dave Shank of Calvary Chapel, Cape May in Cape May, New Jersey. Join us as Pastor Dave teaches verse by verse through God's Word. sure as he tried to hide he was trembling and astonished because he was sitting there what am I going to do he said what do you want me to do Lord this is a great response when the Lord calls your name it's always a good response to say what do you want me to do Lord what would you like me to do because this verse is the essence of the born-again experience what do you want me to do Lord is the essence of the born-again experience because when a person is truly born again and after they had an encounter with the Lord this question will invariably come up what do I do Lord What do I do now? Have you ever thought about the meaning of your life after receiving salvation? Do you revert to your old ways? Pastor Dave explains today how God created you for a specific purpose. God has given you a special gift, and He wants you to use it to spread the good news of the gospel to those around you. Now, here's Pastor Dave in the book of Acts chapter 9 as he begins his message. Saul of Tarsus meets his new enemies. Immediately he preached to Christ in the synagogues that he is the Son of God. Then all who heard were amazed and said, Is this not he who destroyed those who called on his name in Jerusalem and has come here for that purpose, so that he might bring them bound to the chief priests? But Saul increased all the more in strength and confounded the Jews who dwelt in Damascus, proving that this Jesus is the Christ. Now after many days were passed, the Jews plotted to kill him. But their plot became known to Saul, and they watched at the gates day and night to kill him. Then the disciples took him by night and let him down through the wall in a large basket. We've studied the conversion of one Saul of Tarsus. That's been our theme now for quite a while. We first met this young Pharisee during the trial of Stephen and saw him hold the garments of those who were taking part in his execution. And all the while he was doing this, he was consenting to Stephen's death. Then we read as Saul was making havoc and wreaking havoc on the new church. Along with Stephen's death and Paul wreaking havoc, this caused a great persecution in the way. Then we read as Paul would enter every house and drag off men and women and committing them to prison. We saw Saul, the consummate hunter, breathing fire and murderous threats towards the way as he left Jerusalem in search of new prey. He had in his possession letters from the chief priests, letters giving him authority to go into the synagogues, go into their houses, and drag them out, those people who were participating in this way. And he would take them bound back to Jerusalem to stand trial. Once in front of the council, these believers were forced to blaspheme the name of Jesus Christ. They would be beaten and sometimes put to death, all with Saul's blessing. Saul thought he was doing the work of the Lord. In fact, from what I know of Saul... He was proud of what he did. He liked what he did. He liked what he was accomplishing for the Lord. He was proud of his attempts to rid the nation Israel of these rebellious dissenters. Get rid of them. Get them out of the way. But we studied that the great hunter was indeed being hunted himself by an even greater predator. We called that predator the hound of heaven. 
Jesus was stalking Saul as he went on the road from Jerusalem to Damascus. It's interesting that if you read in Proverbs 16, verse 9, it says, A man's heart plans his way, but the Lord directs his steps. What was in Saul's heart at that time was certainly not what the Lord had planned for him. The Lord had a mighty plan for Saul, and he was about to put that plan in place. Somewhere along that road between Jerusalem and Damascus, the hound of heaven caught up with his quarry. Saul and his companions saw a great light from heaven. Within that great light, Saul something looked like a figure that was looking at him, and he fell to the ground. He was confused, and he was amazed. He couldn't believe what he was standing. And all of a sudden, he hears a voice, Saul, Saul. The voice asked him this question, why are you persecuting me? Saul recognizes that the voice has a lot of authority with it. He recognizes that the voice is coming powerful. He's looking up into heaven. He sees this figure standing there. And Saul has the wherewithal to answer back, who are you, Lord? Saul's still gazing in the light and trying to make out with this man and trying, and why is he talking to me? Why is this man standing there? But again, the voice rings out with a great proclamation. I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. Saul immediately recognizes the resurrected Christ standing before him. I'm sure as he tried to hide, he was trembling and astonished because he was sitting there, what am I going to do? He said, what do you want me to do, Lord? This is a great response when the Lord calls your name. It's always a good response to say, what do you want me to do, Lord? What would you like me to do? Because this verse is the essence of the born-again experience. What do you want me to do, Lord, is the essence of the born-again experience because when a person is truly born again, and after they had an encounter with the Lord, this question will invariably come up. What do I do, Lord? What do I do now? The answer probably confused Saul all the more when he heard the voice say, Arise and go into the city, and you will be told what to do. I can only imagine what's going on with Saul's mind at this time. And we talked about it. Here he is trying to wrap his brain around what was happening. He, he was a very intelligent man, and he couldn't believe what he was seeing, and he couldn't believe what he was hearing. This goes against everything that he had ever been taught, everything that he ever preached, everything that he ever stood for. It went against the grain of everything that he knew. He thought the person he was talking to was dead. But he was standing in front of him, speaking to him. And there was a great light coming from heaven. He thought this person was dead. Not only did he see him, but he heard him. He was speaking to him. Can you imagine what Paul was thinking? When Jesus tells him who he is, I can imagine that this really, to use a, a term from the 70, blew his mind. I mean, really. Can you imagine that? Here he is, thinking that this man is dead thinking that Jesus has been dead and buried, but all of a sudden, he's alive. He says, I am Jesus. Why are you persecuting me? He's thinking, Jesus, wait a minute. We crucified Jesus. We buried him. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Those disciples, you know, they all tell us that he's alive, but no. But here he is. This is impossible. Who is this? If this is Jesus, if he's alive, he is the Messiah. He is the Messiah. Can you imagine what's going on in Paul's, Saul's mind? He's not only the Messiah, he's the Son of God, the Holy One of Israel. This is, this is incredible. And then all of a sudden he goes, oh my gosh, I'm blind. Because immediately scales came across his eyes and he couldn't see. Saul immediately gets the help from his companions and they continue their journey to Damascus in obedience to the Lord's command. You know, it's interesting to me that usually when the Lord gives us a command, he gives us just enough to get moving. Ever notice that? The Lord tells you to go over there. What am I going to do over there? Go over there. But what am I going to do when I get? Go over there. What did he tell Abraham? Go to a land that I will show you. What land? I'll show you. 
He gets us moving. And then when we move, all of a sudden he starts to talk to us again. And he shows us different things as we're moving. Notice there's a key here. There's an action. The Lord is waiting for your response to his command. Go. And as you go, things start to open up. And he starts to show you and clearly show you each way you step and each way you go. That's what he did to Philip. Go to the desert. But there's a revival here. Go to the desert. Okay, he's in the desert. See that man over there? Overtake that chariot. And as Philip kept on getting closer, the Lord was giving him more and more commands on what to do. This is what the Lord does in our life. If you're a boater, you know, it's easier to steer a ship that's moving than it is when it stands still. Or have you ever sat in your car and tried to turn the wheels? They don't seem to turn very well when the car is not moving. At least the older cars didn't. Now with power steering, you know, they turn God wants us to be moving when he calls us so that he can direct us. He doesn't give us the entire plan. He doesn't give us the entire situation, but he tells us what to do, what to do, and how to go. When God calls us, he wants us to move, and we need to get on the move, and then he shows us what to do next. We need to be faithful to when he calls. He doesn't usually give us the big picture. He just guides us step by step. Lord, what do you want me to do? Jesus answers by telling him only what he should do at that moment. Lord, what do you want me to do? This is what I want you to do right now. This is the character of God's direction in our lives. He directs us one step at a time instead of giving out the details of his large and grand plan. Saul is obedient to the call of the Lord. He goes into the city, and interestingly enough, what does he do? He begins to pray. He begins to pray. While at prayer, he has a vision of a man named Ananias who will come and meet him and pray with him so that he can regain his sight. Can you imagine Paul praying? He's blinded now, and he's praying, and he has a vision, and the Lord tells him that there's a man coming by the name of Ananias, and he's going to lay hands on you, Saul, and he's going to pray for you, and you're going to receive your sight. And Saul is thinking, wow, this is too much. On the other side of town, there's a man, a disciple named Ananias, and he's in a vision. All of a sudden, the Lord comes to him and says, go to Judas's house. And in Judas's house, there's a man named Saul of Tarsus, and he's praying. He's waiting for you, Ananias. Ananias says, do you know this guy, Saul, the one who's been wreaking havoc on the churches, and you want me to go down there? Yes, I want you to go. Go down there because I've chosen him to be a vessel for me. He's going to be a vessel for me and carry the gospel to the Gentiles, to kings, and to the nation Israel. Now go. Interesting how he's preparing both hearts. He's working in both lives, and we talked about that, how when the Lord tells you to do something, he's probably worked in the heart of the person that he's told you to talk to already. He's probably working right now. Providentially, he's working in the lives of others that we might have talked to in the past, and he's waiting for us to get back in contact with them and continue to talk so that he continued to strike a chord in their hearts to the point where they're eventually going to go, yes, I want this Jesus. It's God's plan. What does Ananias do? He goes to Saul. Ananias goes to Saul. Now, this took great faith because he heard of this guy. He knew all about this guy. This guy was a murderer. He breathed threats against the church. What does Ananias do? He goes, goes into the house and welcomes him into the family of God by calling him brother. We remember that. We talked about that. He prays for Saul, and the eyes, the scales from his eyes fall off immediately, and he says, I want to be baptized. He's baptized. What a conversion. The conversion is now complete. Saul of Tarsus is now a believer in Jesus Christ. Saul of Tarsus is now born again. It's complete. The Lord had bagged the most notorious quarry of them all. And he was his. I'd like to make some observations that we can look at when we look at the conversion of Saul and Tarsus. I'd like to make just a few observations. There are six of them. First of all, 
Paul regarded his conversion as an experience or a pattern for all believers. He said in Timothy, although I was formerly a blasphemer, a persecutor, an insolent man, but I obtained mercy because I did it ignorantly in unbelief. He said that's in 1 Timothy 1.13. And then in 1 Timothy 1.16, he said, however, for this reason, I obtained mercy that in me first Jesus Christ might show all longsuffering as a pattern to those who are going to believe on him for everlasting life. Paul's conversion is a pattern. You look at it, it's a pattern, and we can share in his experiences. What does the pattern look like? First of all, we must be confronted with Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ must confront us. He has to confront us with himself. What does he confront? Our sin, our rebelliousness towards God, even the sins we've done in ignorance. Then we must humbly wait for the work within us that only Jesus can do. He wants to empty us only so that he can fill us again. Saul's conversion reminds us that at its core, salvation is something that only God can do. Salvation is something that only God can do in us. Satan promises a lot of things, but Satan can't promise you life. And Satan can't give you new life. Although he may promise you all sorts of things. But remember, salvation is only something God can do. We can only respond to the work of God. Remember, God is the initiator. The Lord is the initiator of our salvation. He's the one that demonstrated his love to us first by dying on a cross. Saul's conversion reminds us that God finds us even when we're not looking for him. Even when we're looking all the other way, God finds us and comes and captures us and apprehends us. Saul's conversion reminds us that God looks for people to cooperate in the conversion of others. God likes to use people. We've talked about this before. God is a people person, and he likes to use people to cooperate in others' salvation. He'll give you a word to go to somebody. He'll give you a, a want to talk about Jesus to somebody. And as you talk about Christ, he opens their hearts, and they receive Jesus Christ, and you welcome them into the family of God. You welcome them in as a brother and sister, regardless of their past. What a blessing it is to be used by the master's hand. What a blessing it is to be used by God. Saul's conversion reminds us that it isn't enough that we're broken before God, though it is very necessary. But God's desire is only to use brokenness as a preclude to filling. God wants to break you down of all your old habits. He wants to break you down of all the things that you've done in the past, and then he wants to build you up in him. Build you up into this new creation, this new being that you are in Jesus Christ, and that's God's plan. Now as we come into today's study, I wanted to read you a quote by a man by the name of Alan Redpath. He's a well-known British evangelist, pastor, and author. Listen to what he has to say. Whether you be concerned primarily with building the wall of your own soul, or with building the wall of your church, or building the wall of the kingdom of God throughout the whole world, you will discover that there is no winning without warfare. There is no opportunity without opposition. There is no victory without vigilance. For whenever the people of God say, let us arise and build, Satan says, let me arise and oppose. Pretty interesting quote. Whenever a work of God is being accomplished, Satan will be in the midst of that work to oppose it, to destroy it if he can. Whether it's a magnificent work where thousands and thousands of people are coming to the knowledge of Jesus Christ and being saved, or it's just in one heart being saved, one soul that's being born again, Satan will always be in opposition. That's what he does. Satan uses many tactics, and we've seen through our studies the tactics that Satan has used. He attacks from the outside of the church. He attacks from inside the church. He uses persecution, trials, sicknesses, whatever he can use, he will use to his advantage. 
His main goal has always been to silence the Word of God, to keep the Word of God from going forth, whether from the pulpit, whether from your heart, whether from your mouth, whether from your lives. Satan's goal is to keep that Word from going forth because he knows what the Word of God will do. So his desire is to keep you from speaking that word. And he will always look for something to do to thwart that. He always offers us something that looks extremely good at first, but it always brings about death. However, the Lord, on the other hand, offers us eternal life. Offers us life everlasting. There's no comparison. There's no comparison. When a person is born again, he will not only experience change in his new life, but he can expect to find adversity as well. If you're a new believer today, welcome to the family of God. We love you. We'll pray with you. But Saul was no exception to this. Saul was a new believer. Remember that. And we begin our study in Acts 9, 18 through 20. It says, and immediately he preached Christ in the synagogues that he is the son of God. Immediately after his conversion, Saul begins to preach in the synagogues. This must have been mind-boggling for the Jews because here we have Saul. On the one hand, he had a life's work was to destroy anyone who followed Jesus Christ. That was his life's work. And now he's standing in the midst of the synagogue, probably standing with brothers and sisters in Christ and preaching Jesus is the Son of God. Jesus is the Christ. Matthew Henry says this concerning this immediate call. To this he, Saul, had an extraordinary call, and for it, an extraordinary qualification. God, having immediately revealed his Son to him and in him, that he might preach him. When you experience being born again, one of your first responses is to tell someone. One of your first responses is something as wonderful has happened to you, and you know that something wonderful happened to you, and what you want to do is you want to run and you want to tell somebody. It reminds me of Andrew when Andrew met Jesus Christ. When Andrew met Jesus Christ, the first thing he does is he runs to his brother Peter and says, you got to see this guy. Is he the Messiah? That's the way our hearts are when we receive Christ. We are so excited, and we want to tell somebody. We want to share this with them. There's a transformation that's taking place in our hearts. We have no idea what it is. We don't know what it's about, but we know we need to tell somebody about it. The burden of sin is taken away, and we are free, free at last. Praise God. The burden of sin is gone, and it feels like an anvil has been lifted from our hearts and our head. You want people to feel the same way. You want people to understand what you're going through and what's happened in your life. This happened to Saul. Remember, Saul was a student of the great rabbi Gamaliel. He knew the Old Testament prophecies. He probably could quote all 315 Old Testament prophecies concerning the Messiah. And now he's standing before them with all this knowledge, and he's just letting it loose. He's just letting it out. He's just preaching. And they're like, wow, is this still this guy? This guy? Saul had a lot to say. And so do we when we've been touched by the master's hand. When you've been touched by the master's hand, you have a lot to say. You want somebody to listen. You need to tell somebody. You're looking for someone that you can share this with. But look at the main topic of Saul's preaching. He preached Christ. Nothing else. He preached Christ. Saul didn't preach himself. Look at me. Look what I did. I'm now born again. Aren't I great? No. He preached Christ. It wasn't about Saul. He didn't preach another gospel. He didn't preach. He preached Christ, and he was the Son of God. This is the central message of the gospel, yet we make it so difficult. We make it so, so difficult. Christ should be the central message of the church today. Every message should be centered around Jesus Christ. It's what the church should be teaching, what Christ has accomplished in us, not what man has done. We have these big, flowery, wonderful buildings and stuff like that, and people are preaching, look what I did. What? No, look what God did. 
Look what God did in your heart. Look what God did in your life. You have eternal life. Your sins have been forgiven. Why don't you dwell on that for a while? Later, as the Apostle Paul, he's going to write to the Corinthian believers, we preach Christ and Christ crucified in 1 Corinthians 1.23. And then in 2 Corinthians 4, verse 5, he says, for we do not preach ourselves, but Christ Jesus the Lord. That's the central message of the gospel. That is what we do here at Calvary Chapel. We preach Jesus, Jesus, and only Jesus. It's the message for the ages. We're not preaching another gospel. It's not a watered-down, slap-on-the-back, make-you-feel-good gospel. The gospel, if it hurts, it's supposed to. If the gospel reveals sin, ouch, it's supposed to. If we're talking about repentance, we're supposed to. If we're talking about hell, we're supposed to. That's the gospel message. Jesus Christ, the righteous, came to save sinners, of which I am the worst. Praise God. That's the gospel. That's what he's teaching. And that was Paul's thing. He's only teaching Christ, and Christ alone can bring life to our dead lives. Our lives are dead. We were dead in Christ, but God raised us with him. It's a simple message of salvation through faith, but we complicate it. We complicate it. Most of all, we complicate it by works. This Jesus is great, but you got to do this. No, you don't. You do not. It's Jesus Christ and only him. It's interesting that Saul's ministry began in Damascus because right there where he received salvation, immediately he begins to preach Christ. Every new convert's witness should start right where they are. I'll witness when I get over to these places. I'll witness. No, no, you witness right where you are. You witness right in the place you are right now, where God has you right now. That's where the witness takes place. Don't wait until you're someplace else. Don't wait until you're before somebody. Your witness starts right now. If it's your life, fine. If it's your mouth, fine. Open it up and let it go. Look at the response that Saul sees from his former friends, his former worship companions, his own blood brethren, the Jews, in verse 21. Then all who heard were amazed and said, Is this not he who destroyed those who called upon his name in Jerusalem and has come here for that purpose so that he might bring them bound to the chief priest? As Paul preaches Christ and Christ crucified to his formal people, they begin to wonder what has happened. They become amazed at this new direction Paul has taken. This isn't Saul. This isn't this guy. I know this guy. He likes to rough up Christians. That's what we like about him. He likes to give those Christians what for. That's what we like about him. And I'm sure when the Jews caught wind of Saul's coming at, at Damascus, they must have been high-fiving. They must have been having a really good time. Oh, man, wait till he sees this. Wait till he sees this. I can't wait till Saul gets here. He's going to take care of those Christians. He's going to take care of them good. No surprise that I like to watch movies now and then. And there's a movie out. It's been out for a million times. It's on TV all the time. It's called Heartbreak Ridge with Clint Eastwood. And in Heartbreak Ridge, he's a, he's a sergeant, and he's assigned to this recon group. And he gets to this recon group, and they're all living their own lifestyle, and they're all doing whatever they want to do. Well, Clint Eastwood, the sergeant, wants to get them back in line. He wants to get them back in line. And, but they have this one great big guy called Swede. And they can't wait till, till this guy meets Swede, because Swede is big, and he's going to take care, he's gonna take care of, of the sergeant. And they're going, Swede, Swede, Swede. That's what the Jews were doing when Saul was coming to town. You are a 
You've been listening to Pastor Dave on A Sure Hope. Pastor Dave is working his way through the book of Acts. Did you know that the first martyr for Jesus was a great man of faith? His name was Stephen, and he was bold and courageous to proclaim the name of Jesus to others. He wasn't afraid to tell the truth, even when it cost him his life. What courage in the midst of opposition. Do you think you could do the same in this day and age? It's hard to stand up for Jesus when everyone around you is telling you you're intolerant, unloving, and just looking to put people down if you tell them they're doing something wrong. But what makes things right or wrong is firmly rooted in Scripture. It's God's Word that should direct morality, and Stephen was unafraid to go there. If you like this message and would like to catch up on any message you may have missed, head over to AsureHopeRadio.com. There you'll find many messages from the Book of Acts, as well as other series. If you find yourself in the Cape May, New Jersey area, stop in and see us. All the information you need is on our website, location, directions, and service times. And if you prefer to call, you can do that too. Our number is 609-884-5821. Once more, that's 609-884-5821. We'd be happy to answer any questions over the phone. Well, that's all we have time for today, but we've loved spending this time with you. We look forward to the next edition of A Sure Hope. Show.